Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, my guest is Dr. Scott McLeod, a professor of educational leadership at the University of Colorado, Denver. He's widely recognized as one of the nation's leading experts on school leadership, deeper learning, technology, and innovation. He's a co-creator of a popular video series titled, Did You Know? Shift Happens. He's worked with hundreds of schools, districts, universities. He's received numerous awards, has many, many publications, has written books, and I am so excited to have him on the show today. Welcome. I'm super excited to have you here today to chat about all things education. So I always like to start by allowing my guests to just tell us a little bit about their journey in education. Where did you start? How did you get to where you are now as a professor and kind of a leading expert on school leadership and technology and innovation? Uh, Sure. I started as an eighth grade middle school social studies teacher in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools in Charlotte, North Carolina. And somewhere along that path, uh, my wife and I decided that we want to go back and get our terminal degrees. And I'd already had my master's um, in school leadership and had really loved my school law course. And so when we were looking at universities for doc programs, I was looking for a place where I could also get my law degree, not just my PhD. Mm -hmm. And somehow we ended up in Iowa. Um, (laughs) And East Coasters don't know anything about Iowa. Um, So we fell in love with the Midwest during our five years in Iowa City. And during that time, I also had a chance to do some co-teaching with my professors and realized that I just liked teaching, period, regardless of the age group, and really liked working with the adults. Um, And so I come into my doc program thinking that I would just go back into school systems and be a, you know, a school administrator um, at the secondary level and came out on the professor track somehow. (laughs) Um, And then since then have been at multiple universities kind of doing my leadership and innovation thing. We got a big, huge federal grant when I was at the University of Minnesota to launch Uh, the first graduate program in the country to prepare technology-savvy school leaders. That turned into CASEL, my national center on leadership and tech and innovation and deeper learning, Mm -hmm. and uh, started blogging in there somewhere, which is where I sort of got some good visibility, you know, across the country and around the world, and have just been sort of at it ever since. That's the journey. And somewhere in there, I took a four-year break from higher ed and was a school administrator, finally. Um, I was the director of learning, teaching, and innovation for a regional uh, education service agency in Iowa that served about 40 school districts before oh, I came wow. back to higher ed. Wow. How, how is that experience? That's a large number of schools to kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, whenever you're in a service agency, whether it's at like the county level in California or one of these regional agencies like the BOCES in New York or the AEAs in Iowa, um, you get to work with a lot of different folks in a lot of different settings. And you really, you know, for me, it was good on a couple fronts. One is as much as I was in schools, uh, it really helped deepen my connections to practice again. You know, it's easy for us professor types to get out of touch. Mm-hmm. Um, with the day-to-day realities. And then second was uh, just really underscored for me the importance of leadership as I worked with these different systems and saw where the superintendents and principals really had it going on Mm -hmm. and other places where they were really struggling. And it was because of their leadership. Yeah. Well, and as a former teacher, as a coach who works a lot with leadership teams, I have to say that I feel like 
change in education, it's like it's made or it's broken by leadership. And one of the trends that I have noticed, at least from my vantage point, the last I don't know, 10 or 15 years is just the continued movement at high levels of leadership in school districts and kind of the fatigue it creates when you have a leader come in with all their priorities and all their initiatives and they get a staff excited and moving in a direction and then leadership changes. And then they're asked to kind of switch gears and then prioritize what the new leader wants. And it's just, it's really resonates for me how having a strong kind of dynamic leader who then stays in their position for a period of time, how important that is to meaningful change in a school or in a district. Yeah, absolutely. And that sustainability is really hard. You know, we've always had um, relatively frequent turnover in leadership positions at both the principal and superintendent level. That trend has accelerated in the last 10, 15 years. I think Mm -hmm. the average tenure of a superintendent now is less than three years. And for a principal, it's not much more often. Um, and so, you know, how do you have, how do you create organizational sustainability around some core concepts and principles and values when your leader who is in charge of the system shifts every few years is really, really hard. As you note, some of the very best leaders that I've seen have managed to play the political game and keep themselves in their role for a decade or more so mm-hmm. that they have the time to really move systems in some substantive ways. Yeah. And so you're a professor of educational leadership at the University of Colorado. And I'm curious, what qualities do you think an effective leader in this day and age in the school system really should possess? Like what kind of leaders are you hoping to trying to cultivate within your own program? I love that question. Thanks for asking. (laughs) Um, I think a couple things, you know, like a lot of people would say, you know, we want visionary leaders. Um, But I don't think that's the right answer. I I think the answer is that we want leaders who can create systems um, that work. Um, And so it's not just that you have a visionary leader. It's that the leader can create a collective vision that's shared and owned by everybody, right? So that everyone in the system has buy-in about where the organization needs to go. And that's very different from being a visionary leader, right? Because on the one side, you know, that view is sort of like you're sort of the savior person coming in and you're going to pull everybody along with your new vision. And in the other one, you're a builder. Um, you're, you're helping the people inside the community build the capacity to create and own whatever needs to be made. Um, and so that's really where I'm trying to spend my time is really on the building side, mm-hmm. uh, is how do we create capacity in folks, um, that works long term. And so in the leadership courses and programs that I run here at University of Colorado Denver, um, we spend a lot of time talking about systems and, and levers within systems that you can use to move people um, in directions that the organization needs them to go while simultaneously affirming the humanity and individuality uh, of people as we do that. Um, so I think you know, for me, we spend a lot of time talking about effective implementation and operationalization of larger concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, why is our professional development so bad? <laughs> for instance, <laughs> um, it's because our systems are terrible and nobody's willing to roll up their sleeves and honor the humanity and the professionalism of our educators and say they deserve something different. So let's create that together. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just an example. So that's kind of the directions that I try to go. 
And so when you're working with these folks who are kind of thinking about becoming these leaders in education and you talk about something like, hey, professional learning isn't really working for the vast majority of people, do you get them kind of working together to try to brainstorm like a new approach to that system? Have any like really great fixes to some of the problems you guys chat about surfaced in those classes that are exciting that you might want to share? Well, you know, there's no silver bullets um, <laughs> in complex organizations, um, and I would be wary of anybody who is trying to sell one. Um, that said, um, everything is also very contextual. So what's the right solution for school district A is not the right solution for school district B, for instance. Mm-hmm. But we do know a lot about, you know, to use the professional development example, what constitutes effective adult learning (laughs) um, in professional settings. And so, you know, in my class, when we talk about professional learning, we'll probably spend a couple evenings looking at about 25, 30 different alternatives Mm -hmm. um, to the way that PD happens now, right? Why don't we have ed camps as a PD option for Mm -hmm. educators? Why don't we have pub PD? Why don't we have Ignite Talks? Why don't we have, you know, uh, self-guided learning plans. Why don't we give credit for the learning that happens online and in professional learning networks, right? Like these are the kind of discussions that we have. Um, and what I'm trying to help them see, because most of them are existing teachers or counselors or coaches that see the problems in their local systems, but right. aren't in a position of authority yet to do anything about it. Um, so we talk a lot about possibilities and potential structures so that when they do get their first leadership role, they remember that they can go in and tap into some of these opportunities um, and to sit down with their educators and say, what resonates with you? What mm-hmm. might be better options, right? It's not that I have, I'm going to substitute the terrible system we have now with a new <laughs> system that I've come up with is we're going to substitute the terrible system that we have now with something that we decide together um, is productive and helpful, right? And here are a bunch of options for us to think about. And I think that's the way to go into your first leadership position. Um, because again, you're building, you're not dictating. No, I love the idea of focusing on building and really working with the people inside the system, the 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 teachers, the support staff to figure out what works. Because I think one of the things that's fascinating to me when it comes to this concept of professional learning is a lot of the buzzwords that we use when we talk about students, things like personalized learning and blended learning and self-paced learning and student agency and um, inquiry. It's like we're so focused on these things having benefits for learners. And then I feel like the place that they would most benefit, like they could be beneficial for teachers as well, using these ideas within that umbrella that is professional learning. Like how do we take the best of online and offline and create these different pathways for teachers? Because part of what feels so ineffective is just that we sit them all down in a room and we kind of tell them all the same thing. And it's obviously they're going back to very different experiences with different student populations and subject matter. So I think it's great that those conversations are happening in your program. Well, and I think you articulated a couple things there um, that are important to note. Um, the reason we do those things is because, one, we still are hanging on to a dominant model of learning as transmission. We're going to transmit things to you, whether you're a student or a professional educator. If we want you to know something, we're going to transmit it to you, right? Right. Um, 
which is very different from sort of like an experiential model, for instance. Um, the second thing that I think you articulated there is that the reason we bring everybody all together into one place is because there's a lack of trust. And if we don't force you to show up at a given day, at a given time to do something that we want you to do, that you as a professional educator won't do the things that we need you to do, or you won't read that email, or you won't watch that video or whatever. Right? Right. Um, and that lack of trust is very corrosive to the relationships and the success of any school, but it happens everywhere. Yeah. No, it's true. I, I see that all the time. And teachers don't, they don't feel respected. And a lot of times they don't feel super valued when, you know, they don't feel trusted. <laughs> they don't feel like they're professionals capable of doing what they're being asked to do, which is, I agree, it's unfortunate. So cultivating effective, dynamic leaders is obviously one important piece of a very complicated puzzle. And you can work with these folks and talk about how ineffective a, a system like professional development currently is. And they can go into a school system and have lots of ideas, but then they have to function within these systems. And I know we both get probably pretty frustrated by the ways in which a lot of systems, school systems stifle creativity, they stifle deeper learning, they stifle innovation. So given your work with schools, what are some of the biggest challenges that kind of exist within these systems when it comes to accommodating teacher needs, when it comes to accommodating student needs? Like, how are these systems falling short of accommodating those two stakeholders' needs, in your opinion? There's an old saying in leadership that your organization is perfectly designed to get the results that it's currently getting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think we have to remember that most schools today were not designed for creativity and deeper learning and innovation, right? Like that wasn't their purpose. Um, that wasn't their intentionality. Um, so their structures reflect that, right? Mm -hmm. So when we see, um, environments of control and compliance and fear and accountability, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's because that's why we design schools the way they work. So I think the biggest challenge that exists if we're trying to move systems towards sort of a more divergent model of learning as opposed to a convergent model of learning, where we want to see more creativity and deeper learning and innovation, and you don't quite know where it's going to go, right? Mm -hmm. um, is that you first have to work on mindsets. Yep. Um, you have to work on mindsets about what is the purpose of school these days? What do we need it to do for kids? What do we need to do for our communities and our overall society? You know, are we really in the business of preparing regurgitators in a global innovation society, right? Like, is that mm -hmm. really our function? Mm -hmm. um, and then once we have those conversations, then we can start talking about structures and systems, right? What's getting in the way of us moving in the directions we need to go? Oh, well, our PD system is not geared towards this. Uh, our eight-period bell schedule works against this. Mm -hmm. um, our school calendar, you know, uh, we do a terrible job with family community engagement. Um, and so our parents don't understand the kind of conversations we've been having recently. Like there's just so many things, right, that we need to sort of look at. And those are all implementation structures, but they all flow from sort of the, the mindset and the vision conversation about what this school need to be instead. And so when I engage in work with school leaders and classroom teachers around deeper learning and innovation like you do, um, 
what you hear over and over again, of course, is that they're constrained by existing systems <laughs> um, because the systems were designed for something else. And so until we work on the systems and the structures, we're never going to get more than sort of some dabbling mm-hmm. or a few pockets of innovation where people figure out how to break out of the system in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the system does everything it can to just pull those people back all the time. Yeah. So that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. It's like swimming upstream. You're constantly fighting against forces if you're one of those people who's trying to do something different. If you're trying to step away from a rigid pacing guide and this idea that we're covering all of this content by a certain time and you say, I understand that's not working and I want to do something different. It is the most exhausting swim or struggle. And I have been there as a teacher and it's so easy to become so disillusioned with this work. Right. And then you go into some kind of deeper learning school, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Some kind of startup or micro school or charter or some traditional school that's managed to make the transition. And it's like there's wind behind your sails, (laughs) pushing you forward, right? Yes. Um, And it's just a completely different feeling and it's invigorating and it's energizing. And you walk out of those schools wishing that your kid was there yesterday um, you know, your own children, and they're just a completely different place because they're designed for a different kind of learning teaching. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your comment about mindset resonates so profoundly with me because I get brought in a lot to work with teachers around designing and facilitating blended learning experiences. And I love that work, but I feel like if we don't talk openly about mindsets and kind of our view of teaching and learning and what we think our roles are as teachers and learners in a classroom, I can spend all day walking teachers through the design of a particular blended learning model or strategy, but like it's not going to go anywhere substantive without a real close look at what is our value in a classroom? What should our role be? Where should we be spending our time and energy? How do we engage learners in much more deep and authentic learning experiences? And I just feel like I constantly hit up against both systems, but also that mindset piece when I'm working with teachers. Yeah, absolutely. And most educators, of course, were successful in existing past classes of control and compliance. They enjoyed that experience, right? They enjoyed the transmission and regurgitation experience. They got good grades. They feel like they want to pass that forward. And now all of a sudden, you're asking teachers who don't want to change their mindset of school mm-hmm. to start thinking about things differently. So you get the resistance there. And then you have the group of teachers who does want to change the mindset of school that is embedded within a system that doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just got multiple recipes for frustration. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, What's been interesting is obviously in the last two years, educators, educational institutions, school leaders have been faced with just myriad challenges because of the pandemic and the quick transition online. And so I'm curious from your perspective, did you see positive changes coming out of that, you know, transition online, out of some of the, the changes that happened because of the pandemic? Or was it primarily like things that were negative, that were concerning or alarming? Because I think f- for me, I really was 
hopeful that a silver lining of all of this is that it would be a little bit disruptive and and push people to kind of grow and experiment in ways they might not have. But there were also some really, obviously, huge challenges um, presented by that online learning component. And then also kind of the different approaches to hybrid schedules as we kind of navigated back into, at least in part, in-person learning. So just curious what your take is, given your work. Yeah, I think you know, we absolutely gained some new technology skill sets <laughs> during this <laughs> pandemic time um, that we didn't have before, which I think are good. Um, I think also we discovered that we can change much faster than we thought we could as mm-hmm. school systems if we have a need and a desire. Um, so things that, that in the past we might have believed would take us three, five, ten years to accomplish. We sometimes accomplished in a month um, because we had to, right? (laughs) Um, And I think we saw a lot of experimentation with uh, time, right? How do we think about time in a different way? Student learning time, teaching time, school days, and schedules during the week or the year. So I think all those were positive possibilities that came out of the pandemic. And then I think we walked away from most of them. Um, I think there was such a urgency to get back to normal, in quotes. I I was just thinking air quotes, normal. (laughs) Right. right. Um, And then, of course, this overarching political rhetoric around learning loss um, that have together worked against the sustainability of most of those innovations. So I think if you go back and you look at how most schools are operating right now, even though the context is not back to normal, Mm -hmm. we're trying to pretend it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think what's probably most alarming for me as I think about how we've emerged out of the pandemic is that we've really exposed the rigidity of our school systems Mm -hmm. and their inability to change with the needs that are in front of them, mm-hmm. long-term, not just short-term. Um, and how deeply, deeply embedded those mindsets are about what school should look like and yep. our nostalgia for what school should look like, even when it doesn't fit current contexts. Um, so I'm thinking about all the embedded trauma that kids brought with them <laughs> to school this year. Mm-hmm. And we sort of knew that as school systems and educators. And we talked a lot about it over the summer. And then in the fall, when our kids came back, we gave lip service to it. And then we moved on. Yeah. Um, and then everybody's saying, oh, these kids aren't socialized and what it means to be in school. And we're seeing all these discipline issues and behavior issues. And it's because you didn't spend the time up front with your kids, helping them readjust and mm-hmm. helping them take care of the trauma that they're bringing with them. And then you shouldn't be surprised that school as normal, it doesn't work for these students. And here we are, we're still paying the price months later because we didn't do that work up front and we continue to refuse to do the work. Yeah. Well, and I worry too, because I think there's obviously lots of different ways that we need to be addressing student trauma. Because I agree, I just, what kids have been through in the last couple of years is it's so much, not just like, you know, they may have lost people in their own lives, but even just the social isolation component is so intense. I've seen the impact on my own children. Um, And one of the things that I think teachers 
even those who don't feel necessarily um, like they have the tools to help students with trauma. And obviously that's where school leaders and um, training have to be available to teachers, but just welcoming students back and building a really strong learning community that is characterized by safety, you know, where kids feel accepted. They feel they can share their ideas. They feel they can take risks. They get to have conversations. They get to collaborate and work together. And I think the, actually the conversations about learning loss and how do we catch kids up who have fallen behind in terms of content, knowledge, and skills, it just really put all this pressure from my perspective on teachers to just like jump in and go as fast as possible to try to cover lost ground. And then that piece around community building and and how do we create this social network in our classes where people feel welcome and students feel cared for and they feel accepted. I don't know that that work, I don't know that that work's ever done quite with the intentionality. I wish it was done because I think the stronger the learning community, the more uh, high quality the learning is going to be. But particularly this year, it's almost like that learning loss and that that fear about what they didn't learn during the time online like overshadowed something that teachers actually have a whole lot of control around which is that classroom culture and that learning community cultivation yeah no absolutely you know there's the saying that you have to go slow to go fast mm-hmm. um and so what if we had spent the first two to three weeks of the school year spending 80 percent of our time on community and relationships and helping students readjust and helping students with whatever emotional and trauma-related support needs they had, right? And we spent 20% of those first few weeks on content, (laughs) right? And then, you know, we could kind of transition out. So then we did it the other way, right? Okay, now that we've established a really solid foundation uh, in terms of who we are and how we take care of each other and how we spend time with each other now we can you know push the gas pedal on the learning side of things mm-hmm. um, because we have that foundation to lean on and so now we'll do maybe 80 percent content and 20 percent relationships and care as need be right mm-hmm. because we still have to take care of each other as we go along and wouldn't we be in a much better place here at the end of november oh yeah than we are now yeah no, I I keep hearing from teachers. I mean, I was hearing about it in October that they were already exhausted. And, and a lot of that was obviously the pressure they're under just generally, but specifically that the management and the behaviors and all of those pieces that were blossoming to make each day more challenging. And I just... I think that what you're proposing with that split of time and energy in these in a very different place than I think how most teachers started would have made such a better experience, not just for learners, but also for teachers feeling like they get to, they really get to connect with learners and they get to spend their time in the aspects of this work that we really enjoy instead of feeling like they're trying to maintain this really tight grip of control on learners who are just quite frankly, struggling with a whole host of um, kind of issues. And and like you said, trauma. Yeah. And I think that if your view of social emotional learning and how we address that is that we buy somebody's curriculum in a box and we implement it. (laughs) Um, You're going to struggle with that work anyway. Right. Um, But I think, you know, I also recognize that we can pause at any time and do that with our kids. If we didn't do it at the beginning of the year, we Mm -hmm. could do it now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's nothing preventing us from implementing that at any stage of the school year. 
Well, I'm pretty sure this episode's going to drop right before a second semester begins. <laughs> and a, a fresh new year is the perfect time to kind of readjust and recalibrate and maybe put that focus where where it should be for students and for right. teachers. I mean, because I, I know, and this has to be on your radar as somebody who works with to-be leaders, but like my research was around teacher engagement. And so teacher engagement and burnout are huge concerns given the number of people leaving this profession. And I know we both worry that systems aren't changing to kind of meet the needs of people within those systems and the demands beyond the systems, quite frankly, because your point about really thinking through what are we preparing kids for? What do they actually need to be successful beyond school, whether it's career pathways, college, et cetera? I think there is such a huge disconnect between the way we run classrooms and actually the characteristics, the skills, the abilities that we we should be arming kids with to go out into this rapidly changing world. And so I worry that teachers are being asked to do way more. You know, they're always getting more kind of piled on their proverbial plates. And you made the great point in our conversation on the planning document that then they're also being asked to like, hey, also, you know, prioritize your self-care and let's talk about mental health. And here are these webinars you have to attend to kind of think about self-care and think about mental health because leaders and schools know it's an issue that teachers are struggling. And yet, things aren't being taken off their plate. It's almost like this self-care, this mental health is yet another thing they have to be thinking about. So I'm curious, how would you like to see school leaders and systems kind of supporting self-care and providing mental health support in a way that they're currently not? And I know every every school, every district is kind of different, but like generally, what do you think school leaders and systems should be doing to support teachers right now? I think we're hearing from educators everywhere that the facetious self-care webinar offerings in the school admin is now what they really need um, from leadership. What they really need is a reduction in workload where they need different kinds of supports. Um, and so, you know, teachers are in it for children and they're in it because they believe in supporting families and communities. Um, and so when we're seeing these horrendous signs of burnout and stress um, and exhaustion from our educators. It's not because they don't they don't care about the kids. It's because they're operating in systems in which they can't do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the overall task for any school anywhere is to somehow figure out how do we accomplish the basic core needs of the organization while simultaneously not killing the people that work for us. Mm-hmm. And this is where the rigidity of the system comes back into play, right? Is that when teachers say, we need more time, and the response is, we need you to sub for that other teacher who's out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because <laughs> um, there's a sub shortage, di- right? <laughs> right, right. That, that's a diametrically opposed need, right? Um, and so we could rethink time, right? We could rethink how students learn, right? I mean, you're the reigning expert in this conversation on blended learning (laughs) modalities, right? Mm -hmm. Where we could use some of those structures to alleviate teacher time um, and to alleviate the need for direct instruction and alleviate the need for direct face-to-face contact and create some space for teachers, right? Mm -hmm. But we just aren't doing them. Um, because we either don't know they exist or can't figure out how to operationalize them within our system or are so committed to the dominant model of schooling that those things will always be sort of 
extras over on the side rather than core modalities about how we operate. And so as long as we view time and space and how we group kids and how kids should learn in very rigid, structured ways and are not open to different structures and different possibilities, then our system becomes very brittle Mm -hmm. and will break very easily in the face of a challenge like pandemic or a sub shortage or whatever. And I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah. And I think we saw that rigidity play out in really, at least from my perspective, kind of alarming ways during the pandemic, because I, like you, see blended learning and this combination of active engaged learning online with active engaged learning offline is creating a flexibility for educators to navigate any teaching and learning landscape without feeling like they need a totally different skill set and tool set if they're in-person, online, or a blend of the both. And What was fascinating and a little horrifying was, again, I think the lack of trust we see from school leaders sometimes with teachers around accountability and will you actually do it if we don't have you all in a room together? Will you actually do the professional learning that we want you to do? I see that same lack of trust with learners too, right? Where it's, you know, we had kids who had to sit on Zoom calls for the length of whatever their class was, 45 minutes, 90 minutes, where some of the activities, if you're really being thoughtful and intentional around design, would have been much better uh, housed in an asynchronous mode where the student could get off of the computer, engage in some tactile experiential learning, document that learning, submit it online, but we're not trapping them in these Zoom rooms or Google um, Meet meetings that go on and on that are quite frankly exhausting. So I saw all this potential to kind of reimagine and some schools did where they released kids or they played with the schedule. Um, And then you had others that were like, no, you have to log in. You have to be online in your Zoom classes all day long. Or, Or they were doing things like the concurrent classroom, which was, you know, I'm sure you know, modeled on high flex at the second or post-secondary level. And asking teachers to juggle these two populations of learners in class and online at the same time, and many just reverting to standing at the front of the room where the camera could see them and falling back on practices that, quite frankly, I've been trying to kind of get the teachers I've worked with to move away from for 12 years now. Yeah, I think you articulated that quite nicely. I would add to the lack of trust, the lack of courage. Mm-hmm. Um, how much better would teachers be this year if you know they had one day of planning and mm-hmm. four days of instruction like many districts did last year, right? Every yes. Friday is an asynchronous day. Every Monday is an asynchronous day, whatever. Um, we saw a lot of districts employ that and a lot of educators really found the value in that. And so kids were still learning on that day of the week, but it was an asynchronous mode. Hopefully in some of the modalities that, you know, you try to offer up to people because they're more (laughs) engaging and better. Um, But how many teachers this year wouldn't be burned out at the same way if they had that structure, Mm -hmm. right? That they had last year. Um, But our leaders aren't brave enough to go back to the community and say, I'm sorry, but we need this for a second year. I know it doesn't feel as urgent to you, but on our end, there's no way we can sustain a back to normal schedule right now. Yeah, And they're afraid enough of their community that they will not have that conversation. And so instead, the teachers bear the brunt. It's not the leaders that bear the brunt of that decision. It's the teachers. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's interesting that you use the word courage because I was reading um, Brene Brown's, I think it's Dare to Lead, and she talks about courage, compassion, connection. And as I was reading her book, I just kept thinking, that's what we need to be focusing on in education. We need to have the courage to reimagine, to push back against traditional structures. We need to really have compassion for each other and our students. And we need to focus on human connection. We need to find ways to do this work as educators that free us to spend time sitting side by side, small groups or individual learners, and really facilitating and supporting learning. And right now, I think we have a shortage of all three happening in education. Yeah, unfortunately. And, and again, it speaks to the brittleness of our systems is that you know we're designed for one very narrow thing. Mm-hmm. And if something pushes against that, whether it's future-ready needs of our kids or a global pandemic or complete and utter exhaustion of our educators or whatever, most of them don't know how to adapt. Yeah. So I do want to talk about your newest book, but I want to start by having a conversation about deeper learning because you are recognized as a leading expert on deeper learning. So I'd love for you to define deeper learning. I'm very big on clear definitions in education because so many words just get thrown around. And then tell us how you kind of focus on or what your work does in terms of helping educators and schools kind of shift from what I often think of and what Jay McTie um, mentioned on an earlier podcast was like this coverage mentality to really embrace and value deeper learning. Uh, Everybody's got their own definition of deeper learning, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, it has sort of four big components. I call them, you know, four big shifts. Um, And the first one is one that I've mentioned a little bit already. It's this idea that um, how do we move kids beyond factual recall and procedural regurgitation to more cognitively complex learning activities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the buzzwords right now are we want kids to be critical thinkers and problem solvers. We want them up on the upper levels of Bloom's taxonomy or Webb's depth of knowledge wheel. Um, and that's important. Um, the research tends to show us that somewhere around 80 to 85% of most kids' day-to-day experience is the lowest level of Bloom's. And, you know, again, in a global innovation society, regurgitation aren't the skill sets that are needed for success in that space. Mm -hmm. So how do we give kids the opportunity to live on the upper ends of the thinking continuum more often so that they're higher level or deeper thinkers and learners? Um, That's probably shift number one. Um, The second shift is really around agency for me. It's how do we give kids more voice and choice? How do we give them more opportunities to control and own and direct their own learning? Mm -hmm. You know, we've always said that we want lifelong learners, but we tell them what to do every minute of every day (laughs) up until they graduate. And we actively punish them behaviorally and academically when they don't do it. Um, And then somehow they're supposed to magically flip the switch when they graduate secondary and somehow be lifelong learners, right? Right. When they've never had many opportunities to do that for themselves. Um, The other benefit we get from student agency is that it allows us to individualize and personalize and differentiate better Mm -hmm. for students when we have those mindsets. And we also see increases in student motivation and engagement. The cognitive psychologists tell us that the number one factor in human motivation is autonomy. Um, it's control over yourself and what you get to do. And unfortunately, um, schools are low agency, low autonomy spaces for mm-hmm. kids. 
Um, and then we wonder why they're bored and apathetic and disengaged, right? <laughs> um, so that's the second one, um, is really the shift in agency. Third one is around more real-world authentic work. How do we help kids find meaning and relevance in the learning tasks that they're engaged in? Um, we see a lot of questions around, why do I need to know this? Why do I care? What relevance does this have now? or later in my life, and we struggle to answer those questions. But when we get kids involved in their local communities or online communities or global communities where they're making contributions to those spaces, where they're interacting with people outside of schools to do productive work, they stop asking us those questions. Mm -hmm. So that's shift number three. And then the fourth shift is the shift from digital to analog. And that's important in and of itself because we want kids to be information literate and technology fluent um, in 2021 and beyond. And we also know that technology can be a powerful lever for those first three shifts, right? We can do different kind of thinking work. We can give kids more agency and ownership. We can have kids do more real-world authentic work with tech than we can without it. So those are my four components. Uh, Higher-level thinking or deeper thinking, student agency, authentic work, and then using tech as a lever to make things happen. Mm, that's really clear. Thank you so much. And sure. as you're talking, I mean, your point about... <laughs> especially in regard to like the agency and autonomy, you know, you like you said, there are kids who spend all day in school and they never get to decide what they learn, how they learn it, how they demonstrate their learning. It's a very powerless position right. and they get scared of decision-making. You know, you go long enough without having the ability to make decisions. And then when somebody presents you with the decision, students can almost like shut down. And, and your point about school, like, us being flabbergasted. The kids are bored. I think, you know, I watched my own two kids and just think of the analogy of the way in which they engage with media in their home environment, right? Like they decide what they watch, how much they watch. They can get recommendations on things that might be of interest based on things they've watched in the past. I mean, they have so much agency and so much autonomy. Um, and then they sit in these classrooms and they have none. And it, it must just be the most frustrating experience. I know my, my son just is... Ugh, poor guy just does not enjoy his school experience because he doesn't get to engage with his friends, you know, and learn as part of a community for a lot of it. And he doesn't have any control. And it's, it's frustrating because he's a bright kid, but he just does not enjoy the experience at all. Right. And now you multiply that by mil millions of kids across the country, right? Yeah. Who are disengaged. Some of them will physically drop out. So, you know, if our dropout rate is... 15, 20, 25%, depending on what state you live in. Those are the ones who, who vote with their feet and are like, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I'm gone. Mm -hmm. Even knowing that the lack of a high school credential is just rough <laughs> right, for future <laughs> life success, and yeah. they still can't do it. And then you have the additional millions and millions of kids who just mindlessly play the game of school hoping that something better will happen afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So they're compliant and they might be nice kids, but they're not engaged in their learning in any way whatsoever. Right. Um, they're just going through the motions. And that's an even larger group by far than the group that votes with their feet. Yes, absolutely. And maybe not so like uh, visually alarming, but like it's silently alarming, you know, just thinking of kids biting their times in classrooms and really right. not learning very much. Right. 
So this year you published a book titled Leadership for Deeper Learning. I would love for you to tell us a bit about this work, um, what inspired you to write this book. I know you have a few co-authors on this book. What are you guys hoping leaders are going to take away from this book? I appreciate the offer. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to frame this book in the context of my last one. Um, The last one was called Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning. I think you have a copy of that. I do. Um, And, you know, that book was an attempt to focus on the how of instructional redesign, right? How do we take traditional classrooms, instruction and learning activities and redesign them for those four big shifts that I just talked about, right? Mm-hmm. So in that book, we, t- we introduced the four shifts protocol and sort of the, the redesign pivot process and how do we take learning experiences for kids and move them in directions that we know we need to move. So that was sort of the how book on the teaching slash instructional coaching side of things. Mm-hmm. And it was at least my take on that, right? Um, and then this new book is sort of my how book on the leadership side, on the Mm -hmm. systems and structure side. And so what we did was we identified 30 innovative schools around the world that were doing some really cool stuff and also tried to pick ones that probably weren't getting a lot of media attention outside their local area. Like Mm -hmm. we didn't think we needed another book on high tech high, for example. Right. And then what we did is we interviewed every single school principal, and then we did site visits for 28 of the 30 schools before the pandemic shut us down. And so what the book does is it not only describes the awesome learning and teaching that's happening in these deeper learning schools, which is phenomenal, right? Mm -hmm. We really tried to paint those portraits so that readers could really see, oh, wow, look at what kids and teachers are doing here, (laughs) right? Right, yeah. But then we went to great detail about the leadership behaviors and support structures that are in place to make that kind of learning and teaching happen. So, you know, the end of every chapter has those behaviors and support structures. Um, The last chapter introduces a profile of a deeper learning leader in terms of what these people do and what they're like. Um, And so our goal with the book was really to try and articulate in a very specific way, what do leaders need to do and what kind of systems and structures do they need to create in order to make learning, deeper learning happen? And that's the purpose of that book. Very neat. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of getting to read both of these books and think they're phenomenal. So I'm very excited for this one because I know I've kind of done the same thing where I have books that are kind of teacher facing and then some that are coach more leader facing because it's just different, different parts of that puzzle are so important. So I always end the show by inviting my guests to share. It could be a strategy, a tip, a piece of advice, something that has helped you to kind of establish or maintain balance in your life um, that you can share. And I, I tell people, Scott, this is really just me trying to learn from my amazing guests what works for them. <laughs> because even though I host this podcast, I definitely struggle with balance in my own life. So what has worked for you that you might like to share with the audience? A couple things. Um, one is, uh, if you don't already have a dog <laughs> or some <laughs> other pet that gets you outside and forces you to walk, um, a big uh, recommender of that. I've noticed that my walking miles and health have improved dramatically since we got our own pandemic puppy. Um, Wait, I got to so ask, been, what, what breed is this? <laughs> um, 
Brutus is a Zushan. Uh, he's half Shih Tzu, half Bichon. He's 17 pounds of awesomeness. Oh. Um, My first yeah, German Shepherd cute. adopted was named Brutus. Okay. All right. There you go. <laughs> very cool. Um, I think also in, kind of want to put this in the show notes, okay. um, is that we always have to remember that people will say that they care about you, but many fewer will care for you. Mm. And I think it's always important to recognize that any organization, whether it's a K-12 school system, a corporation, a university, whatever, will be more than happy to chew you up mm. and take all of your best efforts and energy. And then when you're completely exhausted, spit you out and say thank you and hire somebody else to start the cycle again. Um, And so we have to be unapologetic about taking care of ourselves. And if we can't find a workplace that values self-care, then we have to find ways to make those stands ourselves, right? So if I was a classroom teacher right now and I was in a school system that wasn't making some of the adjustments that you and I have talked about here over this hour, I would unapologetically take every single leave day I can and not even worry about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know that educators feel guilty about that because they know that some other teacher might have to cover for them. Right. Mm -hmm. But as we know from a long history of organizational and labor relations, systems don't change unless we push on them. Um, and so as long as we allow the school leaders in the community to not own the problem, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because we're willing to do the extra, like give up my planning period or give up my leave day, um, then the systems are not going to change uh, because they're not being forced to, right? Right. Um, and so I would unapologetically take every single sick leave, personal leave, mental health leave, whatever I have available to me to keep myself um, as healthy and cared for as possible during this time and let the system worry about the system ramification. You don't have to own that as an individual. Um I guess the third thing that I would say here is one of the things I introduce my principal licensure students to is that there are a variety of self-care wheels out there. Mm-hmm. And I would be happy to include one with the show notes. Yay, thank you. Um, that asks you to think about different dimensions of your life, right? Um, what kind of so at the center of the wheel might be something that says, like, what kind of life do you want to live? And then around that it has sort of segments, kind of like a trivial pursuit wheel, right? Mm-hmm. And it might be things like hobbies or spirituality or family or work or whatever, right? Whatever your things are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it asks you to set goals in each of those areas. What are my personal goals around spirituality? What are my personal goals around free time and hobbies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are my personal goals around my family and so on? And then it asks you to articulate concrete actions that help you realize those goals in each of those segments, right? If this is the kind of life I want to lead, this kind of spirituality, family, personal hobbies, whatever dimension, right, that I'm Mm -hmm. trying to take care of, then these are the things I know I need to do to accomplish that. And then whenever you're feeling out of whack, (laughs) go back to your wheel. (laughs) Go back to your wheel and say, which of these dimensions of my overall life that I want to live my neglecting mm-hmm. and how do I start engaging in some of those concrete actions to return back to the kind of balance that I need? That's great. I love, I, I love that that is so concrete 
And like, it has a clear process. It's like can serve as a nice anchor and guide to take what sometimes feels like, oh, self-care, I don't know, a little abstract and really pin it down into what we value and what we know we need to do to actualize what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I like the concreteness of it too. I'm also cognizant that it's really hard. (laughs) Um, Because we know that pieces of our lives ebb and flow depending on the current context, right? I just had a new baby. And so I've I've got to give in some other areas because that baby needs more attention than, you know, she's going to need later when she's 15 and doesn't want anything to do with me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right? Um, So things ebb and flow depending on life cycle and current work context and family context and so on. But if we can articulate for ourselves what a balanced, holistic life looks like, then we can recognize when we're out of balance and hopefully engage in some of those concrete actions to get ourselves closer to being in balance um, as quickly as possible. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. It was a real pleasure to get to talk with you. I always love spending time with you. Thank you. a few really powerful points I want to revisit from this conversation. First is the importance of leaders as builders, not just as visionaries, which I think is so important in a time when leader turnover is, you know, we only get leaders for about three years and they often leave or go to a different position and that can create some instability, but not as much if you have leaders who focus on building. Systems, school systems are really rigid and that's problematic because they don't stand up well in the face of any change, especially like the ones we've all been living through the last two years. And we need systems that are flexible, systems that are nimble and adaptable. And so the systems we currently have, they need to be reimagined. And I loved the question that Scott posed about what is the purpose of school? Like, what are we preparing kids for? What do we want them to do in their communities and in their world? world? And are the systems in place going to achieve what it is we're hoping they're going to achieve? Are they going to prepare students with the skills they need to thrive? If we want our students to be critical thinkers, researchers, collaborators, innovators, they need opportunities to drive their own learning in a school setting. And as Scott said, schools tend to be low agency environments, and that is problematic. Students need agency. They need opportunities to make key decisions about their learning, to drive their learning in meaningful ways. So cultivating great leaders focused on building, reimagining school systems, and arming students with the skills, abilities, and really traits and characteristics that they need to thrive in the world beyond classrooms. None of that is simple to figure out, but all of it's important to consider. Thank 
you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and with different language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include an engaging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or follow the link in the show notes.